Friends, it's nice to see you and uh, very good to be with you. I want to begin uh, our treatment of this subject by talking to you briefly about uh, what seems to me to be uh, a rather striking feature of Australian public life today and I'd be interested, though I won't ask you to respond to me at this point, but I'd be interested in whether you see it the way that I see it. But it seems to me that there is a, a quite remarkable extent and intensity of what I've called, and there it is on your um, notes there, uh, moral outrage. Now whether it's directed to the treatment of asylum seekers or to the horrors of child abuse or the dishonesty of politicians or the selfishness of the baby boomers, that's me, or any number of other objectionable things that are going on in the society around us, we hear in the public media and in ordinary conversations what I can only describe as moral outrage. There is a level of anger at these things. There is an insistence that they or some of them are wrong. Uh, they're not just unpopular, they're not just in poor taste, they're not just undesirable, but they are wrong. And here that word wrong has a moral sense. These things ought not to be the way they are, is what we hear, what we perceive, now, while there is often fierce controversy over the matters that ignite this moral outrage of which I'm speaking, almost all of us share the experience of moral outrage. I'd be surprised if you haven't. In fact, I'd be concerned if you haven't. Yourself experience something of moral outrage. Even if we don't all agree on the matters themselves that detonate our rage, uh, I'd be surprised and indeed I'd be concerned if you haven't had the experience. The curious thing about this is that it's happening in a society when in its karma, that in its karma moments has elevated tolerance to a controlling virtue. We've come to think that no one should claim to know the truth about almost anything. All anyone can claim is to have his or her point of view. And one person's point of view is not right, while another person's point of view is wrong. They're just different, different points of view. And the right approach we are taught by our day and by the climate of thought uh, around us, the right approach is tolerance, which means recognising the validity of different points of view, but not setting different points of view over against one another. Now, nowhere is the promotion of tolerance in this sense as a virtue, uh, more pronounced than in the common approach that we find in public discourse to religion and religious beliefs and to the related questions of morality. The idea that anyone would suggest that some religious beliefs, or worse than that, some religions, are actually wrong, while other religious beliefs are right, is beyond the comprehension of many uh, today. Religious beliefs are, after all, just beliefs, it is said. Uh, they're neither right nor wrong, they're neither true nor false, because beliefs are just beliefs. They're purely points of view. I can no more suggest that your belief about God is wrong than I can argue that your favourite colour is wrong. You've got it wrong, you should like pink, whatever. I am, of course, all for religious freedom, just as I want everyone to be free to choose whatever colour they want to be their favourite colour, 
But just as I could not accept the intolerance of someone who insisted that red is better than blue and everyone should like red best, I cannot accept the idea that some religious beliefs are better than other religious beliefs or worse than that, are truer than other religious beliefs. Now, I find myself wondering whether there is any connection between the pushing of relativism, which is really what I've been describing, to the extreme that we find in some versions of postmodernism where all human knowledge, not just religious and not just moral, but all human knowledge is relativised and regarded as subjective. Is there any connection between that way of thinking that has its sort of popular expression in the tolerance thing Is there any connection between that and the intensity and the extent of today's moral outrage? Is the intensity a kind of compensation for the loss of categories to justify the outrage? After all, if you really think that human knowledge is purely and entirely subjective, that all we've got is points of view, and if that is especially so in religious and moral matters, then you have to to realise that you have nothing to say, nothing rational to say to the person who thinks it's good to lock up asylum seekers. Well, that's one point of view. There are other points of view, but there's no ground for discussing the points of view. What about the people who think it's good to molest children? It's good to tell lies. It's good to be selfish their points of view, you can only be outraged at these points. I don't like those points of view, but you have to face the fact that your outrage is is itself just your point of view. And what I'm wondering is whether the fact of the tolerance, the, the climate of tolerance actually it adds to the intensity of the outrage because we can't actually handle the outrage, we can't justify it, we can't talk about it. The point, however, that I want to draw your attention to in all this is that moral outrage and tolerance are in profound tension because, in fact, they reflect two different understandings of human life. One is that there is something terribly wrong with at least some human beings, that some human beings would lock up rather than help desperate people. That, and you can go on and think about the things that raise your moral... There's something terribly wrong. And there seem to be a lot of people for whom there is something terribly wrong because there is so, much th- so many things to be outraged about. The other view is that there's nothing wrong. And we should simply accept or at least allow all points of view on everything. Christianity has a radically different approach to both tolerance and to moral outrage because it has a very different understanding of human life. We believe that moral outrage can be justified but that is only because it is more than a point of view and we also believe that tolerance is a good thing, an important thing but it means affirming people's right to be wrong rather than denying the categories of right and wrong, true and false. Now, my task today is to explore something of what Christians believe about human nature. I'll be exploring something, emphasis on the word something, I won't be exploring everything. Um, That's a good 
because given the time available and given the competence of the speaker, it's just as well it's only something that I have to talk about. Confirmed, Ryan explained that I got it right. Uh, this is the third in a series of nine talks that are scattered through the year, designed to explore nine basic Christian beliefs. The talks are based on nine statements that make up what is known as the doctrinal basis of the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, of which this group uh, is affiliated. Um, this statement, with this, this nine statements made up of the nine statements, is a very fine document, and I do recommend it to uh, careful reading. And I hope that you might get it printed off at some stage with all nine points in front of you. Uh, an excellent document, uh, briefly stating what Christians who believe the Bible believe. It's a very helpful way for a person to get a, an understanding of what the Christian faith is, because that's very much misunderstood in our time. And it's very helpful for anyone who wants to get the basic Christian worldview clear. Uh, what, is, what are the key elements of a Christian understanding of God and of life and of the world? These nine statements that uh, you're working through this year are a very, very good place to start. But it's worth being warned, at each point, what the Bible teaches, when you understand it, is radical. And it challenges whatever views we human beings manage to invent for ourselves. The first statement Andrew Cattay spoke about uh, some time ago was about the Bible itself. Um, that it is a book that has been inspired by God and therefore has the authority and the reliability of God. The message of the Bible, therefore, is not one of the many opinions that the world has to offer. No, uh, it is a word from God that addresses all people and addresses all people with the truthfulness and the goodness and the authority of God. That was the first thing about the Bible. The second statement Peter Jensen spoke about uh, was about God himself. Um, that there is only one God and yet he is three persons. Those who make up their own ideas about God never come up with this. The third statement we come to today is probably the one of the nine that is likely to cause most offence, so I'm very grateful for those who passed me the slippery ball. And that's because it's about human beings. It's about us. And just as I suspect everyone uh, here in this lecture theatre has their own opinions, however vague they might be, about the Bible, you've got your views about the Bible, you've got your views about God, and just as those opinions are probably, probably in some way different from what the Bible actually teaches about the Bible and what the Bible teaches about God, so perhaps even more so, uh, we all have opinions about ourselves and about human beings and what it means to be a human being. It might be vague, but it's very hard to get this stage of life without some idea of who you are and what you are. But unless you are a person who's learnt very well from the Bible, it is certain that your opinion of, of, of who you are and what you are as a human being will be very different from what we find in this third statement, this third of the nine statements, and uh, you may well find it rather shocking. Uh, the third statement at the top of the uh, notes that you have there, uh, just look at it, it asserts this. The universal sinfulness and guilt of human nature since the fall rendering man means mankind of course subject to God's wrath and condemnation 
Now friends, what I'm going to do is focus on the first part of that statement and then at the, at the end, as you can see how the outline there falls out, we're going to briefly comment on a couple of other points in the statement um, uh, and, then, and then conclude. But the bit that I want to focus on is what I think is the main statement uh, before us. It's the first part of that sentence, the universal sinfulness and guilt of human nature. And for the next few minutes I'm going to try and unpack that by looking at sinfulness. You see the notes, how they go? Sinfulness, universal, human nature and guilt. What's meant by that and what is the Bible actually teaching under those headings? This is the Bible's diagnosis of the human condition. The fundamental problem that the human race has. Everybody has their opinion as to what's wrong with the human race. I haven't met anyone yet who thinks there's absolutely nothing wrong with the human race, but everybody has their vague opinion or their very specific opinion as to what the problem is. Some people have their proposed solutions as to what ought to be done. Here is the Bible's analysis of what is wrong. The universal guilt and sinfulness of human nature. The Bible is saying that behind all the difficulties behind all the failures, behind all the pain of human life is this fact about human beings. Behind the environmental crisis facing us, behind the impossibility of human beings living at peace in this world, we just we cannot manage to do it, behind the failure of anyone anywhere at any time to create a just society, it's never happened yet, behind the violence that we don't seem to be able to eradicate, behind the greed, behind the dishonesty, behind the broken relationships is this, the universal sinfulness and guilt of human nature. Now, this is extremely difficult. For I find it difficult to talk about. You will find it difficult to hear and you'll find it difficult to understand and you'll find it even more difficult to agree with. That's not because it's complicated, but it's because it's true. You see, the universal sinfulness and guilt of human nature, if it's true, gives us a perspective that cannot see the universal sinfulness and guilt of human nature. Let me try and explain that. It's because this diagnosis of the human condition only makes sense when you take God seriously. But the diagnosis is that we do not take God seriously. Listen to one uh, very helpful, I think, statement uh, in the Bible, very clear statement from the beginning of Psalm 14. Uh, the references I'm going to read out quickly uh, are all on, your, on, on those notes and if you want to follow this talk up, one very good way is to take the notes away and look up the Bible passages and read and think about them. But uh, Psalm 14 begins like this, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none that does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none that does good, not even one. Now Psalm 1, although it begins, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, is not just about atheists, although they're certainly included, it's about people who say in their heart there is no God. Not just with their head, but in their heart. In other words, people who do not take God seriously. That, says this psalm, makes a person 
a fool. Now again, we have this sort of circular problem. It's a vicious circle if ever there was one. People who do not take God seriously find it very difficult to see the seriousness of not taking God seriously. Now that too is foolishness. It is stupidity. Can't you see it? If God is our maker, if God is our judge, if he is the one who has given us life and who's created the world and who cares about his creation enough to hold human beings accountable, if that's who God is, then of course to refuse to take God seriously is the ultimate stupidity. But once you've done it, once you've committed that ultimate stupidity, its inevitable effect is to blind you to its idiocy. It does not seem at all stupid to not take God seriously if you don't. But the psalm describes this situation not from the point of view of the fool but from the point of view of the God whom the fool is refusing to take seriously. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God and they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt and there's none that does good, not even one. Here is the first and most important thing to understand about what the Bible means when it speaks of human sinfulness. Sinfulness does not simply mean moral failings of one sort or another. Your sinfulness is not refer fundamentally to the things you feel guilty about, the things you wish you hadn't done because, and you certainly wish, hope, hope that nobody ever finds out about them. It's not a reference to those things. We can only begin to understand what the Bible means by human sinfulness when we have reference to God. And that is our big problem with this subject. Our sinfulness gets in the way of seeing our sinfulness. When another Bible writer, it's Isaiah, puts it like this, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear. Those words are not just speaking about the effects of human sinfulness. You do naughty things and so you're in trouble with God. Might be truth in that, but he's talking actually about the essential character of human sinfulness. The essence of what we're calling sinfulness is refusing or failing to take God with the seriousness that God ought to be taken. Now that leads to behaviour that is not good, true, but the behaviour is the symptom, not the disease. The disease is the human repudiation of God, rejection of God. And whether we can see it or not, the Bible is very clear that sinfulness, in this sense, is a universal phenomenon of human nature. So let's take up the universal word and think about that for a moment. Uh, in the Bible we find in Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 this rhetorical question, who can say, I've made my heart pure, I'm clean from my sin? And the obvious expected answer is no one. In a rather better known passage in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 draws together a number of Old Testament texts like that one that I just read, uh, not that one but like it, and applies them to his contemporary world. This is in Romans chapter 3 uh, from verse about 10. He, he writes, No one is righteous. 
No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That gives you a clue as to what he means by righteous. All have turned aside, that's turned aside from God, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Now, when we hear this, and we hear this analysis, it, it can sound preposterous to our ears. You hear that the Bible says no one does good. Say, so, I don't think I can believe that. How can the Bible say such a thing? What world does the Bible live in that it says no one does good? I mean, I've experienced so many good things that have been done. I'm sure you have. How many acts of kindness have you experienced? How many, how many good... How, how can the Bible really say no one does good? What does it mean? Is it simply oblivious to all the good things that I have actually been done? No. The answer is that the Bible has this annoying habit of always taking God into account. And in that frame of reference, when you take God into account, even the very good human actions that human beings do, we acknowledge those things that we call good exist, they are done, but from the Bible's point of view, when it takes God into account, when God is being rejected at the same time as we do these good things, when God is being repudiated and not taken seriously while we do all these good things, the good things themselves are not all that good after all. They sort of got grubby and corrupt. There is something wrong with them, even then. Denial of God twists and distorts even the very best of human actions. But of course, if you're into God denial, you find it very hard to see that. You just see the actions, you say, that's good, that's kind, that's pleasing, that's, that's because you're refusing to take God into account. And of course it will look different when you do that. Let me give you a, a, a brief a further taste of the Bible's way of describing this problem. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, from chapter 6 of Jeremiah. Uh, Behold, their ears are uncircumcised, a strange uh, adjective to apply to ears, but nevertheless he does that and I won't go into the metaphor that he's using. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. This is, this is what human nature is like. You hear a word from God and it is an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Now, of course, Jeremiah was speaking about the people of Israel of his own day, but when you step back and you see what the whole Bible is teaching and you particularly you take Romans chapter 3 into account, you see that what the Bible is saying, it says a lot about the people of Israel, especially in the Old Testament, but the Bible as a whole is saying that Israel is a microcosm of the human race. And so that all people are by nature, as you see close up with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And so uh, Stephen, in the pages of the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, was addressing the Jewish people of his day in, there in Jerusalem and um, he wasn't particularly tactful. Towards the end of his address, he, he spoke directly to them and said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised, there it is again, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And what the Bible would uh, not allow, it would not allow us to restrict that description. All people, are by nature like that. In this very connection, you see, arguing this very point uh, in Romans chapter 3 and the key passage, which we're not spending a lot of time in today because of time, Romans chapters 1 to 3 is where what we're talking about is spelled out most fully in the pages of the Bible. 
um, Paul draws a conclusion of his long argument through those three chapters where he says there's no distinction, actually, no distinction between human beings, no distinction between groups of human beings. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you're hearing this, uh, friends, and if you're um, taking it on board, and if you are a human being and looking around, most of us seem to be, uh, it's almost inevitable that objections to this will be rising uh, in your mind. It it is an unwelcome understanding of human nature. Uh, We want to say good things about ourselves because, after all, that's ourselves we're talking about. Uh, To hear that the Bible says these things is, is, is most unwelcome indeed. Perhaps the most important problem that we have with what's been said so far is the suggestion that this is really human nature. And if it is human nature, then how can we be blamed for it? Where's the guilt in what we are? We don't want to really believe that we are like this, that we are by nature sinful, but if we are, blowed if we're going to acknowledge that we're guilty for it. Well, let me try and take up those questions in turn. Firstly, the human nature bit. The Bible certainly traces human sinfulness to something very fundamental in human beings. Uh, I don't find the expression human nature uh, very often in the Bible, although it does occur. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 is perhaps one example. More commonly, the Bible uses this language. It speaks of the human heart uh, or the human flesh. Uh, In this connection, listen to Jesus from Matthew chapter 15. Jesus said, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Uh, Jesus was speaking as the Old Testament prophets had spoken before him. Jeremiah in chapter 3 verse 17 spoke about their own evil heart. Or again, the same prophet, they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And so they went backwards, not forwards. Now in these and a whole lot of other statements, what we find is that the origin of our sinfulness is located precisely in our own being. The point being made by this teaching seems to be consistently that the blame for our sinfulness cannot be shifted from us to somewhere else. The responsibility for our sinfulness lies deep within ourselves. Jesus again, you will recognise them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but it's a diseased tree that bears evil fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, but nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And if you're bearing evil fruit, and that's what this is being saying, that all people do, uh, in our sinfulness, uh, then you're a diseased tree. Job put it like this, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. When you turn to the writings of the Apostle Paul, not only him, but especially him in the New Testament, he uses the term flesh uh, for sinful human nature. A very well-known passage in Galatians chapter 5 that goes like this. Now the works of the flesh, he means by that word our, our human nature, 
The works of the flesh are evident. This is what we do out of our own human nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these. The list wasn't quite long enough but you can fill it in as long as you like. He seems to say, I warn you as I warned you before, he writes, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no hint that those who behave in these ways consistent with their own sinful human nature are in any way exempted from responsibility for their actions on the contrary but we'll come to that in just a moment that our very nature is sinful is underlined by the clear teaching in the Bible that our sinfulness is inherited Jesus put it like this that which is born of flesh is flesh that's John 3 verse 6 to be born into the human race is to inherit a sinful nature. Psalm 51 verse 5, David. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now this is not David making an excuse for his own sinfulness, it's my mother's fault. His own sinfulness, the subject of this psalm in which he's speaking, was adultery and murder. It's sort of at the, at the sort of excessive end of human sinfulness. But this uh, psalm, Psalm 51, here in verse 5, is his clear realisation that his very being is shot through with the tendencies that came out in adultery and in murder. So that as far back as he can go, looking at his life, far back as he can go, he can see those tendencies. He has been a sinful being from the very beginning. Uh, Following the same theme, Peter refers to the sinful way of life as the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Uh, And you find it again in uh, the passages that are mentioned there in Ezekiel and Amos. Uh, Isaiah called his contemporaries offspring of evildoers. There is, you see, a certain inevitability about human sinfulness. You're a human being? Well, because you're a human being, I know you're a sinful human being. All human beings are, we inherit our sinful nature from our parents. The the inevitability is captured by Jeremiah rather graphically in chapter 13 where he says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? If they can, then you can do good. You who are accustomed to do evil. What I'm talking about now, uh, again, is very difficult for us to take in and certainly very difficult for us to agree with. Uh, It's expressed in yet another way. So if I can just make sure that we're clear that this really is what the uh, Bible teaches. It is that human beings are in bondage to sin. Uh, Put very simply in the words of Jesus, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 verse 8, those who are in the flesh, that's those who have a human nature, cannot please God. It's not, you see, as though we have a say in this matter of having a sinful human nature. It's not as though you could wake up tomorrow and decide not to be a sinful person any more than a leopard could wake up tomorrow and decide he'd have stripes instead of spots. But the question then, of course, if you take that into account and you've understood that, the question that rises very uh, profoundly for us is what about this guilt bit? 
If sinfulness is an aspect of our inherited nature that is shared by every human being in the world and we cannot change it, we don't have any choice in being sinful human, where does the guilt come from? After all, you don't call the leopard guilty for having spots and not stripes. This is particularly difficult. This is one of the aspects of the Bible's teaching that I think is particularly difficult for us in today's climate. Difficult in any climate, but it's got special difficulties today. For when we find that there's anything wrong with us, uh, or anything wrong with our behaviour, the tendency these days is to blame somebody else. You blame your parents, you blame your genes, you blame society, you blame your circumstances, you might blame the devil, you might even blame God. You blame anyone but yourself. We're all victims these days, you might have noticed, but none of us owns responsibility. Let me say just two things about this that won't clear away all the difficulties, but might cast a little bit of light on them. First, we do have a cultural blind spot uh, in our particular Western culture of this decade and a few decades before it, for that matter, that arises out of our excessive individualism. We don't really have an easy understanding of what I'll call collective responsibility. Now, it's quite right to make a distinction between individual responsibility and collective responsibility. The Bible does that in a passage like Ezekiel chapter 18. But what we've done is forgotten the existence of collective responsibility. Let me give you a very poor analogy. All analogies, certainly the ones I come up with are poor. Uh, They don't carry all the weight. But let me me just think about this one with me. The the great debate we had in this nation uh, some years ago as to whether people like me and people like many of you should say sorry to the Aboriginal people of this country for the way in which white people came and took over the land that was previously theirs. It was an interesting debate, an important debate, uh, but particularly for what it reflected about our understanding of life and of things. One side of that debate, it seems to me, argued with the assumption that the only kind of responsibility is individual. I personally, as an individual, am not responsible for what happened in this land 200 years ago. I wasn't here, for goodness sake. Uh, I cannot, therefore, be held responsible for something that happened so long ago. I'm sorry it happened. I wish it didn't happen. But I'm not connected to it. And it would be meaningless, therefore, for me to say sorry. Trouble with that is it's not the whole story. I now live in the land that was taken. I belong to the group that enjoys many benefits that are the direct consequence of the invasion. I am connected to the events of 200 years ago, whether I like it or not, whether I choose to be or not. I'm connected by virtue of the group of people that I find myself belonging to. I might wish I wasn't, but I am. And if I'm happy to accept the benefits to me of the invasion, I should accept my connection to it and acknowledge that the wrong was done and I'm connected to the wrong. And so there is an appropriateness in me saying, sorry, not, not in an individual sense, no, I'm not individually as an individual responsible for that, but I'm caught up in the responsibility for it And there is such a thing as collective... Now, as I said, it's not a perfect analogy and you might have problems with it and you can talk about that later on. But according to the Bible, there is something else that I'm saying is sort of analogous to that, which says that the human race shares a collective guilt that we inherit by virtue of being connected to the group called humanity. 
the whole human race and every member of the human race shares responsibility for our sinfulness. Now, because we find difficulty thinking in those terms, if that's not very helpful, I'll go on to the second thing uh, about the guilt that's associated with our human nature and I'm sure you'll find that a little bit more illuminating. It's easier for us to handle. We human beings, you see, confirm our sinfulness by our own choices uh, from the earliest opportunity. Our collective guilt is confirmed by our individual guilt as soon as we have the wherewithal to express it. In other words, it's true, we find it natural to be selfish. It comes out of the nature we've inherited. But then we go ahead and choose to be selfish. We find it natural to ignore God. But then again we go ahead and choose to ignore God. When the Bible insists that the source of our sinfulness lies in our own hearts, which it describes as evil, what it's really pointing to is the obvious truth that our sinfulness is something that accords with our will. We are willingly slaves to our sinfulness. We accept our condition and gladly affirm it. Um, in an important passage, that important passage in Romans chapters 1 through to 3 about this subject, Paul has this sort of refrain where he says, they are without excuse. There is no excuse for sinfulness. Sinfulness is the most absurd thing. To cast off God, to try and escape God, to try and have nothing to do with God is the absolutely stupidest thing that anybody can imagine doing and we all do it. It's the ultimate stupidity. Remember the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that foolishness leads to the other foolishness of thinking that there can be any excuse for it. Now, very important for us to take uh, what we've seen so far uh, on board. I now want to say that the universal guilt and sinfulness of human nature is not all that the Bible teaches about humanity. And in the, just a moment, uh, as I draw to a conclusion, let me make a very brief comment on two other things that are in this statement and then draw a conclusion. The two things are since the fall and God's wrath and condemnation. Since the fall refers to the fact that the way we are is not the way in which God created humanity and God is not to blame for our human sinfulness. The two references you have there from Psalm 139 and uh, Ecclesiastes 7 uh, talk about what a wonderful thing God has made when he made human beings. What an extraordinary thing God did when he made human beings. Humanity is not sinful by God's design, but by human decision. We didn't begin like this as a race. We became like this because of human rejection of God. You, hear, you read the story in Genesis chapter 3, and Christians refer to the human rejection of God as the fall. God's wrath and condemnation then refers to the fact that God is the one to whom we are responsible for our sinfulness. He is our maker and he holds all people accountable. He is the righteous judge of the whole world. Human sinfulness, our statement says, renders man subject, mankind subject to God's wrath and condemnation. Romans 1.18 spells that out. Is that because God is vindictive and hateful? No. It's because God is perfectly good. Now friends, what we've been able to touch on today uh, is basic to the Bible's teaching about human beings. It's very, very important. But it is emphatically not all. 
And so I hope you will be present for the later talks in this series that will take us beyond the human problem to the extraordinary solution that God has provided in the person of his son Jesus Christ who we understand came into the world to save sinners. However, you will not appreciate that solution and you will not see how we absolutely need that solution until you see our problem, which is the universal sinfulness and guilt of human nature since the fall, rendering us all subject to God's wrath and condemnation.